Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. I got to meet composer Charles Corey when I visited the Harry Parch Institute at the University of Washington in Seattle late last year, where he serves as the director of the Harry Parch Instrumentarium. He was kind enough to give me a tour, allow me to play some of the instruments, which I have to say was a real treat for me and something that I'd planned to share here on the podcast. But apparently I was so excited about being in the presence of all of those Parch instruments that I forgot to turn on my recorder. I can't believe I didn't turn the recorder. Oh, yeah. I turned it on and then... So where, where did you go to school? Exactly? Still, I managed to snag a few sounds, and I made an arrangement to catch up with Charles on Skype post-visit to recreate that tour and get some more background on his connection with Parch. He also gave me a terrific recording with some more sounds, so I'll make sure and drop those in here and there. Charles' own work is known for exploring and subverting various tuning systems as well as unexpected evocative harmonies and strong dramatic arcs, all of those things very much in the spirit and lineage of Harry Parch, whose music and instruments he clearly loves and devotes a great deal of time and energy. We'll pick up on our conversation here. So I'm hoping to recreate the conversation that we had while I was there and also expand on it. I, I will, uh, confessional time here, I, I actually did have my recorder with me, and, uh, but I, I guess I was just so excited to be there in the, in the uh, shadow of these instruments that I only hit the record button once instead of twice, and so I missed our entire <laughs> tour around the room. So you gave me a personal private tour, which I very much appreciate, but uh, I did uh, was able to go back and get a few of the sounds, um, which I'll, I'll edit in from time to time here in our conversation. So let's start with, uh, with you and how you got involved with Parch's music, uh, you know, from the beginning. Sure. Um, I first discovered Parch's music my first day uh, as an undergrad at Montclair State University, which is where the instruments were uh, until we brought them out here to UW. Um, when I enrolled at Montclair, I didn't know anything about Harry Parch. I did not know that there were any special instruments of any kind at the university. Um, and on the first day, all the incoming students went to hear each of the music faculty just quickly explain sort of what they do at Montclair, what classes do they teach. And Dean Drummond, who was running the Parch Ensemble at the time, gave a quick talk about his work as a composer and sort of mentioned at the end that he had a studio at the end of the building with unique musical instruments that played in a new tuning system. And I thought that was the most interesting thing I'd ever heard of. So assuming that everyone else in the class is going to have the same thought, as soon as this uh, introduction was over, I ran across to the other side of the building and got to the parts studio thinking everyone's going to be in there. I have to make sure that, you know, I can get in the door. Uh, and none of my other fellow undergrads came that day. So I was treated to a private tour of the studio. And uh, as you know, that's a very interesting experience. You hear a lot of new sounds. The room we were in then was a little bit bigger than the room that uh, I showed you a few months back. So it had maybe three or four more instruments set up as well as a couple of Dean's own instruments. 
And I spent about an hour or an hour and a half in there getting to know a little bit about each instrument. And by the time I was done, uh, I knew that that was what I was going to be spending the majority of my time on as an undergrad, was working with these instruments and learning about the tuning. And and what was your background before uh, before college? Where, instrumental, vocal, what was your sort of, what was your thing? I guess it's reasonable to say I was still kind of finding my way around. Uh, I did a lot of brass playing, a bit of trombone, a lot of euphonium and some trumpet. Um, and I had just gotten started out as uh, doing some percussion as well, maybe two years before college. Um, that's about the time, I think, as well, that I started really seriously uh, composing. Before then, I had written some, I had been writing since I was a, a, a small child, um, but I started really notating things down clearly and in the traditional way instead of just scribbles on paper. Um, so everything was just sort of starting to take shape for me okay. uh, in terms of what I was going to be doing. And I think that's one of the reasons the Parch Studio made such an impression. Yeah. So what were some of the uh, Parch repertoire that you uh, got to participate in during your, your college years? Anything, any one particularly memorable that uh, stands out for you? It's, I, I must be one of a very small number of people uh, who have had the chance to play through most of Parch's music. I know some of the people who worked with him with Parch in uh, the 50s through the 70s, Danley Mitchell especially, had a chance to get through a lot of the music. Um, but I was involved in, just while I was a student, I was involved in um, all of his sort of mid-length works, so things like Castor and Pollux, Daphne of the Dunes. Um, we did a production of Parch's Oedipus. We did, right after I finished my master's, we did Delusion of the Fury, and certainly that was, for me, that piece was the highlight. It was sort of the last piece that I did before I moved on uh, to, I moved out to the University of Pittsburgh uh, to do some, some more studies. So Delusion of Fury, which was Parch's last major work, was also sort of the last piece that it seemed I was ever really going to do with the ensemble. And then, uh, as it turned out, I ended up working with them again after I finished my studies. So let's pick up the story from there then. So you finish your studies, you start working with the, um, with the instruments again, and then maybe you could tell us about that and the transition from there to uh, being invited out to the University of Washington. Sure. Um, so I ended up moving back to New Jersey after I finished my PhD, and shortly after I got back to New Jersey, I kept in touch with Dean the whole time I was away. Uh, he was a important composition teacher for me, uh, as well as someone who I spent countless hours with in rehearsal. So we kept in touch and he knew that I moved back and he needed another player for whatever the next project was. Um, I believe it was a performance of Daphne of the Dunes uh, at Carnegie Hall. And so I got involved right again with his ensemble, uh, new band. And I went to work with his students, and then I ended up teaching at Montclair as an adjunct professor. I did that for a semester and a half before Dean uh, unfortunately passed away, and all of his classes were passed on to me to sort of handle for the rest of that semester. And in the course of that process, I got in touch with Danley Mitchell, who is the owner of all the Parch instruments. He was Parch's uh, sole heir. 
And in talking with Stanley, he wanted me to continue working with the instruments. Uh, and so that's what we did. And I continued the program at Montclair for one more year, at which point um, it was kind of decided between Montclair and Danley and a couple other parties that, you know, it had been a, a good run at Montclair, but it was time for the instruments to move on. Uh, the school had other needs now. And so we brought the instruments out to the University of Washington. Uh, the way that sort of came together is in late 2012, we had done what at the time seemed like just a one-shot concert out here. We brought the instruments all the way across the country. It was like a full week to drive them across. We did a concert. Dean gave a talk, and we drove them back. Wow. And uh, I didn't do the driving, fortunately. But it's a, it was a really long process, and it was a really interesting event. And it sort of seemed at the time like it was just one thing that we did. But the director of the School of Music out here, uh, Richard Carpin, was very interested in thinking about maybe a, a future collaboration or some way his students could get more involved with the instruments. And I remembered that. And so I passed that on to a few people who were working on trying to find a new place for the instruments to go. And it turned out that there was still great interest out here. And so we came. Fantastic. Fantastic. So I want to back up a little bit and talk just a little bit about Dean Drummond and his work with the instruments. If you could kind of walk us through, um, because there you mentioned the new band, if you could sort of walk us through the different uh, iterations of these instruments and Dean's involvement with that, it's to kind of give us a little bit of history on that. Sure. When Harry died in 1974, the instruments were all at San Diego State University. Um, and they ended up there because Danley Mitchell, um, he had already had a job at San Diego State. He was head of percussion studies or something like that. And he was able to, with this position, just bring all of Parch's instruments into the percussion studio and set them up. And so they had a, a place to live. And the instruments were in New York for production, I believe, of Revelation in the Courthouse Park. Um, that might not be right. But they were in, in New York for production of something, one of Parch's larger works. I think this is 1989 when San Diego State told Danley they couldn't come back. Um, they needed the percussion studio to be used for just regular percussion stuff, and Harry's instruments had to find somewhere else. Uh, and at the time, Dean was living in New York, and through a series of sort of interesting, fortunate events, uh, Turned out that Danley said, okay, the instruments can stay there if Dean works with them, which Dean was happy to do. He had studied with Parch um, a little bit in California. He was a student in what I believe was the only academic class Parch ever taught, and he had played with Parch's ensemble and some done some of his major recordings. So he was familiar with the instruments. He was in the middle uh, at that time of a project of his own to build some replicas of Parch's instruments to play his music. So it worked out that the instruments stayed in New York and Dean brought them around a few various warehouses and studios until in, I think, 99 or 2000, uh, finally 
coming to an agreement with Montclair to bring the instruments there and sort of build a program for the students to work on them. That kind of gives us a, a pretty good history of uh, the sort of background of the instruments after Parch uh, passes away. So now let's get in and talk about some of the specific instruments. So at, at the time when I visited you there, you were preparing a concert and um, the instruments in the room were the cloud chamber bowls, the cone tree, uh, bass marimba, marimba eroica, diamond marimba. Chamber bowls. This, these are the uh, the gourd tree. Is that the official name? It's the yeah, gourd, tree. gourd tree. And Charles was telling me that these um, the bells were a gift from Emil Richards. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, Chuck knows way more than I do about it. Maybe you could just kind of so walk us around. Out. Uh, if you remember <laughs> from that particular concert, what all was being used, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the instruments? Sure. So uh, the program we were working on then is the same one I'm working on now. Oh, okay, so great. The studio is exactly as crowded as you remember it. <laughs> um, uh, if you kind of remember the way the studio was laid out, I don't know if you have any images from that. Um, I do. Yeah, and I'll, I'll definitely, I'll put the uh, images up when I post on my website, so if anyone's listening wants to go see the images, uh, I mean, the, these sort of, the instruments that we saw uh, that day that you had set up there were, are some of the most iconic. I mean, the cloud chamber bowls, I think anyone who knows anything about Harry Parch knows about the cloud chamber bowls, and um, similarly with the gourd tree, these are sort of two really iconic um, things that have been, uh, you know, in music history textbooks even. So, exactly. uh, but I will certainly, uh, put all my pictures, um, uh, on the, on my website when I post the episode. Absolutely. All right. Well then we'll go straight through them. So the cloud chamber bowls, this instrument right now, it's gone through several different configurations, but where Parch ended up was 14 glass gongs, uh, suspended off this large wooden frame. Uh, these gongs each are parts of large Pyrex carboys, humongous bottles that are cut at various points to determine not really a precise pitch, but you cut a smaller piece if you want a higher note or a larger piece if you want a lower note. Uh, so at best, if you cut them really well, you can get two of these bowls out of one Pyrex carboy. Um, and although it is possible to tune them with specialized equipment parch never had access to it so he was always in a situation where if one were to break he'd cut another one and see what pitch he ended up with and put it in the right place in his scale and then probably have to rewrite a lot of his music for the new tuning of the instrument uh so it's very weird yeah. compared to all the rest of parch's instruments which are so precise and he was able to tune 
mostly on his own, exactly into whatever pitch he needed. This one, he was able to cut something, figure out what pitch it was, and then he had to work around it. Uh, and what makes the instrument even a little more complicated is that if you strike on the tops of the bowls, it gives you a very different sound, uh, sort of what he calls it a xylophone-like tone. which is totally unrelated to the pitch that you get when you strike the edge of the gong and is you, you can't tune that at all. So you have two completely unrelated pitches on each one and you may never be able to get those two again if it happens to break. Uh, right now we still have seven of, I don't know that they are the original, original ones, but seven bowls that were from Parch's lifetime. So I think we're doing okay. Wow, great. So with those, you said he would cut them, and then whatever the pitch was, he was sort of stuck with that. Did he ever, was he able to do fine-tuning on it? If it was like close to the pitch that he was in his tuning system, was he able to sort of shave a bit off or something to get a, to fine-tune it to the exact pitch? Or I, I know that it is possible to do that, but I don't think he ever had the equipment. The problem is working with glass... Right. Um, with this tempered glass, either you're going to grind away at it and the glass is going to destroy your tool and you're not going to change the pitch at all, or you need some really fine water-cooled grinding equipment, uh, which would have been way too expensive and unreasonable for him. Hmm. So I don't think he ever did tune anything down. I see. Okay, next. Yeah, so moving from here, we'll get to everything that we can tune. Uh, the gourd tree... This is 14 um, either singing bowls or temple bells or whatever term uh, you prefer. But these are all mounted on gourds, and the gourds are suspended from a eucalyptus branch to sort of resemble an instrument that might naturally grow in this shape. Uh, so it's a really beautiful-looking instrument. The sound is gorgeous. It has a very long sustain, especially with the addition of the gourd resonators. Uh, and it's another, this is a fairly late life invention for him, which is why it's sort of in a more whimsical shape than some of his earlier, very serious dramatic instrument shapes. Uh, but again, like you say, it's become a very iconic, it's uh, iconic part of his orchestra. It's a very beautiful instrument and uh, there are a lot of nice photos and video of him working on it and performing on it. Uh, this instrument usually is also played with the cone gongs, which are two uh, World War II era aircraft parts. These are the nose cones from the fuel tanks. And so they're struck with mallets. Pretty much you can do what you want to them because they're aircraft parts. They're designed to take a beating uh, much more than most musical materials are designed to. So they can get incredibly loud and on their own can almost overwhelm most of the instruments in Parch's ensemble. And usually they're played by the same player on the gourd tree just sort of to facilitate uh, not having way too many people involved on the stage. It's usually possible for one person to manage both of these. This instrument behind them uh, in the studio is Cathara 2. 
Hithara 2 happens to be personally my favorite of the instruments to perform on. This has 72 strings set up in 12 sets of six. And each one of these sets of six strings, uh, Parch calls a hexad, are tuned to one of Parch's primary tonalities. When we're working in his system, instead of 12 major keys and 12 minor keys, we loosely base uh, our, our theoretical discussions around six primary O tonalities, which are pitches derived from the overtone series, and six primary U tonalities, which are uh, you know, under tonalities, which are sort of the inverse of these overtone series collections. Hmm. And so Parch has each of his primary tonalities laid out in some form uh, across the bank of this instrument. On the outside, between the strings and the soundboard are Pyrex rods, and that lets you give these long pitch bends or slides like you would find on a slide guitar, uh, which really are a characteristic element of a lot of Parch's music. Yeah, that the sliding tones uh, is something that we would probably all recognize as a characteristic thing. But even on the when we talk about the diamond marimba later, that's sort of a, a thing that where you scrape a mallet across and you sort of get the same kind of sliding tones. But often he was doing that with string instruments. Um, is that am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. To get a little bit out of order. The first instrument that Parch invented was his adapted viola. Right. Uh, and this is an instrument with a regular viola body uh, and an, an elongated neck that brings the range down to uh, to G, which was close to the bottom of Parch's vocal range. And that meant he was able to accompany himself on this instrument at a unison or any other interval. And his earliest pieces that he wrote for this instrument were... Uh, 17 lyrics by Li Po, and he did settings of two psalms and uh, the potion scene from Romeo and Juliet. Right. And these pieces were all for him to be uh, the violist and the vocalist. And the intent was that he could accompany what he could naturally do with his speaking voice. So it's not about these rigidly placed, this is what got him into just intonation and tuning study in the first place is that he was not interested in these rigidly 12 rigidly placed steps through the scale. He was much more interested in emotional inflection and what the human voice is sort of designed to do. Uh, and so with this Justin Tone system, and especially with the adapted viola or the cathara or any of the string instruments, really, he's able to slide around in these really narrow intervals the same way that a human being will slide around with their voice uh, instinctively. One of my favorite uh, pieces of Parches is the letter, which is the uh, guitar. Uh, or is that an adapted guitar, or is it a guitar that's just tuned uh, in in his system? Uh, so the earlier iteration of that piece, yeah, does use his, one of his adapted guitars, as well as um, I think in the first iteration, it's adapted guitar, cathara, and. Uh, a couple other instruments, but the guitar does follow exactly these same tiny intervals that the voice is capable of. Cincinnati, Ohio, October 2nd, 1935. Hello, pals. Hello. 
Yeah, that's one of my favorite of his pieces. I think of uh, one of my favorite pieces of all of them. I don't know what what about it appeals to me. The uh, just the um, sort of the the postcard sensibility of it. That this these were um, real real people. Uh, I, I don't not not sure what appeals to me about it the most. But I, I love the text and his sort of way of sing, singing through that. And uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite pieces of his of of all time. I think. It's a really beautiful setting, yeah. And yeah. I think it shows something about his relationship uh, with Pablo, who wrote him the letter, that he would get something from him in, in the mail and immediately decide this is music. Gee, I was glad to hear from you. Believe it or not, pal, I just received your letter today. It must have followed me all over the world. But it got to my wife, and she broke it open and read it and sent it to me this morning. Well, I came back east and ran into a shotgun wedding, and I was the goat. Great. Well, let's uh, let's keep on our tour here, moving uh, moving along. So the next one would be the bass marimba. Uh, this marimba has the same low C as you would find on a traditional uh, five-octave concert marimba. But in order to have a straight resonator instead of one that flares or curls around or whatever those instruments need to do to accommodate uh, the volume that they need, Parch built his instrument up on this riser so that the sound wave could travel straight down into the resonator and straight back out. Um, and so all the resonators here are salvaged organ pipes. Uh, and this low C going up, there are only 11 pitches and uh, the instrument has about a two octave range. But despite that limited number of tones, uh, it's a very versatile instrument because of the different ways Parch instructs his players to to strike it. There are several different types of mallets, very heavy, uh, thick mallets that pull out a ton of fundamental and uh, get a lot of power behind the sound. Lighter mallets that are still probably a couple of pounds each. Uh, that get a more full sound and bring out a lot of the overtones all the way up to very small mallets that you would find uh, used on a more traditional marimba. He also has dowels that are wrapped uh, with various felts or, or other materials so that you can strike on the edge for really a lot of power behind the sound and articulation. And often you'll hear it played with hands as well. Yeah, that's a really uh, beautiful instrument. It's it's so interesting too to stand up uh, up high on the on those risers and play it because you know as a percussionist, I mean, I'm used to playing the standard concert marimbas and with the as you said with the curved resonators. What does having the resonators? I may be getting too technical here, but what does having the resonators going straight down? How does that affect the the tone or the volume of the bar? There are kind of a couple ways to to accomplish like the next instrument of his we'll talk about is the marimba roika uh which obviously does not have straight resonators they're all over these large caverns but um the really basic level of it is that the resonator either needs to have uh needs to accommodate the wavelength or needs to have a particular volume 
so that the sound can resonate that way. So the ideal most simple resonator would just be a straight line that's the size, the wavelength it needs to travel to the bottom and out. Uh, and so that's what we have up here on a concert marimba because these pitches aren't still outrageously low. So the resonators don't need to compensate too much, but um, I forget which which marimba manufacturers do it which way, but some of the resonators will sort of curve around at the end. So the wavelength kind of fits in there. Um, and other ones have the resonators that kind of get really fat and wide at the bottom mm -hmm. so that it can add more volume to bring out the sound. So it's all just different ways of sort of solving the problem. Um, but Parch's solution was, you know, instead of building a resonator that will help this bar sound the way I want it to, I'll stick the resonator, the simplest type of resonator under here and just put the player up on this riser. Yeah. Okay. And moving, moving on. So, right, the Marimba Royka, uh, this is an instrument with just four tones. The lowest one is below the lowest note on the piano. Uh, so I, I think it's fair to say it's the lowest marimba in the world. But <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> if, there's, if there is a lower one, I'd love to see it. It's, um, it's too bad that, you know, that, um, that people listening to the podcast, if, if you've never experienced these things, but this, this instrument, uh, maybe uh, more than any of the others, really is impossible to capture on recording because this thing, these really uh, huge, huge marimba bars just, you know, it shook the room. I remember one of the, one of the tones was uh, vibrating some, <laughs> some rafter in the room or, or a tile in the ceiling or something. I remember that, but just, you feel it in your, in your gut almost that this, this bass subtones yeah. from these bars. Yeah, especially the bottom two bars, which are 22 hertz and 33 hertz, respectively. Uh, so they're tuned in a, in a perfect fifth. Um, my experience with them, even if I'm the person at the instrument playing it, I always, you see the bar struck, then you feel your chest kind of <laughs> start to <laughs> vibrate, and then you hear the tone. Yeah, wow. Um, it's a really special instrument. Yeah. He, by the time he invented it, he was really focusing on dramatic music, uh, music for the stage, and whether it's for dance or for theater, or what might, whatever it might be. And this instrument really adds that, just a whole level of, of drama to it. A, it's you're watching a player contend with mallets that are five or six pounds. Um, and B, when you see them hit that instrument and you can feel it before you hear it, it's just a really powerful sensation. Yeah. Um, but so it's just four bars. It's interesting in that because of the size of these bars, the longest one is about, uh, eight or 10 feet long. I forget offhand, <clears throat> but so the player stands in the middle of the instrument, two bars on the left side, two bars on the right, again, up on the riser. And as I alluded to these resonators, <clears throat> instead of traveling straight into the ground, uh, they would have to be outrageously tall and sort of be a fixed element of whatever stage they were a part of. So these have cave type resonators that just have an enormous volume that lets the sound wave kind of uh, germinate in there and, and be forced back into the room. So uh, the four tones are either played with these very large mallets or with hands. 
And when they're played with hands, it's very difficult to capture the fundamental that way. Mm-hmm. But overtones, you catch the overtone at one and, and two octaves pretty easily this way. So you can still hear the pitch relationship between the four bars, even though you can't get all the depth. But playing with hands is really the only way to get any type of fast motion on this instrument. Right, right. Okay, great. Moving moving down. So after this, um, we'll talk about the harmonic canons. The harmonic canons are, Parch has five harmonic canons. Actually, he also has instruments that are called harmonic canon one, which are different from the instruments that are just harmonic canons. So ignoring those for now because they're not in the studio anyway. He has five harmonic canons. And they are all 44 strings stretched over a resonating box. Uh, two of them have a set of thinner strings on the top and thicker strings on the bottom that are exactly an octave apart. And the other three are all just set in that higher octave. But from these open strings, Parch can design a configuration of bridges that shortens each string by a defined amount uh, to determine what the tuning of that instrument is going to be. And so for every piece that he wrote, almost every piece, he has a completely different configuration of bridges, which gives these instruments uh, a different scale to play on and usually a different character as well. And then the last two instruments that we have out in the room are Chromalodeon 1 and Chromalodeon 2. Uh, these are both what would have been a um, hundred some years ago, fairly common reed organs, pump organs um, that a lot of people would just have had in their homes uh, before electronic keyboards became a go-to thing. So these are instruments that have a bellows that you manually pump uh, with your feet on, on two pedals, uh, and that draws the bellows tighter and sucks air through the reeds, which depending on which keys you press down determines what pitches are sounding. Uh, Parts removed all of the reeds from these organs and replaced them with reeds that were tuned into his system. So the chromolodians all start out with a 43 note per octave scale. Um, and of course other instruments in his, in his orchestra have different collections of this and his string instruments are certainly capable of far more than 43 pitches per octave, but for the chromolodian, we're dealing with the 43-note scale. And that takes up about three and a half keyboard octaves. So the instrument, despite being an organ, doesn't really have the expansive range you would associate with that type of instrument. It's chromolodian one does not quite have a two-octave range. Chromalodeon 2, which Parch built much later, sort of has some interesting pitch layout. It's not always sequential, uh, and there are some leaps at the bottom and top ends so that he can kind of expand the range and make things like simple triads a little bit easier to play. Uh, the only other instruments we have in here 
I mentioned the adapted viola already. We also have uh, his two adapted guitars. Adapted guitar one is an instrument that went through several um, experiments during Parch's lifetime, but ultimately uh, it ended up as six strings all tuned all tuned to a unison, and it's played with a slide like a, like a steel guitar would be. Um, so it's just a unison that you can slide around to, again, any pitch in his system. And adapted guitar two is a slightly more complicated take on that same idea. Guitar two has 10 strings, uh, which are laid out either in an O-tonality or U-tonality tuning, so a major or minor tuning, um, and again, played with a slide. But in this case, you're sliding around this full chord uh, instead of just a unison pitch. The last instrument we have in here is the surrogate kathara, uh, which is an instrument Parch invented when he wrote a part for kathara 2 that turned out to be very, very difficult to play, uh, almost impossible. And instead of making the part simpler, he decided he would build a new instrument and split the part between two players. Uh, so that was the genesis of the surrogate kathara, but actually it turned out to be a very versatile instrument. This has two sets of eight strings laid out horizontally uh, with a, again, a rod set between, a glass rod set between the string and the soundboard. So just like the outer uh, hex sets on the kathara, you're able to slide these pitches around and get these long moving chords. Um, but because the instrument is laid out horizontally instead of vertically like the kathara, it also makes for a very good percussion instrument. And you'll hear a lot of sounds um, in recordings like um, the Wayward, which is a collection of four pieces, Barstow, the letter, San Francisco, and that's out of order. It's Barstow, uh, San Francisco, the letter, and U.S. Highball. You'll hear a lot of passages there for struck strings, and those are on the surrogate cathara. So you get these powerful attacks, and then the slide as the pitch decays. Uh, it's used a lot in his theater pieces as well, especially The Bewitched and Delusion of the Fury. Yeah, great. Well, uh, that, that sort of walks us through a lot of the instruments or all of the instruments that were there when I was there. And so thank you for giving us that uh, in-depth tour of each, of each one. And um, the question that I want to ask you is, um, you know, in terms of your own composing and musical life, I mean, this was such a huge part of your formative years and even as a young professional you know start still coming back and playing these instruments and then and then turning around and being the curator and and director of of the instruments um how much of this sort of aesthetic uh do you owe to your or do you bring to your own work and in what what ways do you do things differently or you know, can you talk a little bit about, can you talk about how it influenced you, but at the same time, how you're, you've managed to create your own, you know, voice in this, in this sort of world? Yeah, it's, um, I don't think I, I said this explicitly earlier, but when I was introduced to Parch's Instruments that first day uh, that I was at Montclair, I was at a point, again, I was just basically getting started as a composer. So to be introduced to uh, new tone colors, new instruments, and the idea of new tuning systems, I was a little familiar with 
um, mean tone and well temperaments, but only kind of conceptually. I didn't know really anything about them. So I was suddenly introduced to the world of tuning systems, to all these new colors. And what I took from it more than anything else was just the idea that there are possibilities out there that I don't, that I haven't even considered yet. Um, which I, I, I mean, I already knew there were things I wasn't aware of, but to see how deeply one composer could go down one track was very interesting. Um, and I didn't do a lot with tuning for a couple of years after that, but by the time I was finishing my undergrad, I was a little bit into um, quarter tones or getting some really weird, um, you know, 11th and 13th partial harmonics and things like that just sort of trying to figure out what what am I going to do with this language. Um, and it wasn't until even a couple of years after that that I started really seriously composing in just intonation. And since then, uh, I've gone to explore other tuning systems. I'm working right now in 31-tone equal temperament. Um, and I have a piece that I'll hopefully uh, start mid-summer that would be in 19-tone equal temperament. So um, for Parch, this tuning system, just intonation was the answer because it let him work with the human voice in the way that he wanted, and it let him work with emotion and expression the way that he wanted. Um, for me, being introduced to these ideas gave me, I guess, an awareness that these systems are out there and that they actually help me express what I'm trying to do in ways that I can't always accomplish on uh, 12-tone equal-tempered instruments. Hmm. There's a, a period of adjustment, I think, that, you know, for listeners who are used to hearing equal temperament uh, when they when they come in contact with Harry Parch's music or or any composer who uses some alternative tuning system, there's a, a moment of adjustment. And I've always felt this with, you know, when I introduce my percussion students to Harry Parch and we listen to something and, you know, they sort of cock their heads to the side and go, wow, that's really strange. You know, this almost sounds dissonant. But then after a while, uh, a minute or two minutes into, you know, you, you your ear adjusts and, and you start to just be in that world. Um, and it, I, I wonder if you have experienced that with, with players that come to the ensemble, uh, if it take, if there's a period of adjustment, uh, uh, living in that world before they're really comfortable, because I know you've worked with students of all, uh, levels of ability and, and, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that they don't just happen by the Harry Parch studio. They're, they're probably self-selecting groups. So, but, but I'm just curious to know sort of, uh, what you think about, about this idea of that, that there's that moment of adjustment, but then once your ear attunes, you're there and you're, you're in that world. Yeah. I think it's a different process for everybody. It sort of depends how far have your ears been open to other things. Um, I think if you're already really comfortable with, uh, Puro Lunaire and you come to some of Parch's vocal works, it's not going to throw you that much. It'll be a little bit different tuning wise, but there's a lot of similarity in their treatment, uh, and the treatment of the vocalists. In, in both of those worlds. So you have sort of an element to tie them together. Um, if you're familiar a little bit with um, 
some of the later work of Lou Harrison, which is just in tone, but perhaps doesn't take it to the the harsher extents that Parch can sometimes go. Uh, it makes it a little bit easier to hear some of the harmonies and, and understand it. And to go back to my thoughts about historical tuning systems, if you've heard uh, any anyone playing Bach in the temperaments of, of his era, mean tone and well temperaments and things like that, jumping into some of Parch's more simple, it's not functional harmony, but his really strongly consonant harmonic language, that might not be too jarring. But at some point, there's usually an, uh, something that everyone runs into that is very far away from what they've heard. And uh, my experience usually is that if you just stick with it for a couple of weeks, it does start to make sense. Then by a couple of weeks, what I really mean is maybe two or three hours a week for a couple of weeks listening to this or coming into the studio or just sitting in for a rehearsal of a piece that we've been working on for a couple of months. And so it's at a point where it's starting to come together and harmonically make sense. Yeah. Um, so people, there are some people who come in and even if they have no familiarity with Parch yet, um, the music and the language and the tuning, it's all fine. It makes perfect sense. But you do run into also points where uh, someone comes in and they're so rooted in a different tradition that there's a more unusual learning curve for them to join in. Yeah. But you're right. It, it generally is a self-selecting group unless I'm giving tours specifically to, hey, everybody who's studying this, come down to the studio yeah. uh, and I'll show you around the room. Otherwise, mostly it is people who want to have this experience uh whether they know a lot about it yet or not, they want to, uh, they want to be exposed. And so that's really all you can ask for. Well, it's a fascinating uh, world and Harry Parch is such an iconic, uh, force in the world of music and, uh, Boy, it was really powerful to be standing there and looking at the instruments and seeing his, uh, you know, um, just the handiwork uh, that went into to all of these instruments and even the little numbers written on some of the keys. You know, you it's just really interesting to th to think that such one person had such a such a vision and scope. Uh, with their art that they were able to uh, do this and and to dedicated um, you know curators and supporters like yourself who have kept this music alive and kept the instruments up and running you know thanks to you and uh, and your predecessors and um, boy it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful thing so glad to have that at the University of Washington and that you have a home there with the parch instruments and um, yeah. We only have uh, maybe a couple of minutes left. Do you have any closing thoughts? Well, um, I guess I would say I really do enjoy um, showing people around the studio and talking about Parch's work and tuning. And if anyone is interested in coming up uh, to the Seattle area and getting their hands on a few of these instruments, absolutely they should feel free to reach out and uh, we'll find a way to make it happen. Okay, Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to sort of revisit our our uh, personal tour, and uh, I, but I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, 
john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.